G'day, I'm Luke Tipple. Happy Shark Week and welcome back to The Daily Bite, the show where we go behind the scenes with the stars of Shark Week and talk about one of our favourite subjects, sharks. Today we're joined by one of my favourite New Zealanders, Dr Riley Elliott. Last year we saw him discover massive makos, but this year he's headed back to an island that's become infamous for its mega tiger shark action. Okay, let's listen to a clip from Return to Headstone Hell. On a remote island in the South Pacific, where discarded cow carcasses attract a unique frenzy of gorging sharks. Wow, this is insane. Look at them all above us. Dr. Riley Elliott uncovered the highest concentration of tiger sharks ever seen. 45 tiger sharks and four days on the water. Well, the shark action certainly hasn't let up at Norfolk Island. Welcome back to the show, Riley. Oh, cheers for having me, Luke. Yeah, and you, you did right there, mate. That was, uh, well, one of the most intense trips I've ever had. And I think Kenneth said it in the show, it was the most intense trip he's ever had. So, uh, yeah, it did not disappoint. Yeah, it looked absolutely gnarly. But before we dive into that, I wanted to ask you about how you've been. It's a weird year for everybody, but from what I saw, you had some big life changes. You got married in the last year. What, what's life happening? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I felt kind of guilty. COVID year for me has, has been the busiest year I've ever had. Um, you know, a few Shark Week shows, a few other Discovery shows. I got married. Um, you know, I moved into a house. <laughs> Not that I wasn't living in a house before, but um, <laughs> yeah. It, it, but it made me really appreciate, um, you know, how lucky I am to be in this position. And, uh, you know, not to take things for granted. And also how incredible... Um, you know, people can be, you know, we shot multiple episodes in multiple countries right in the middle of COVID. And it was really eye-opening um, for me personally, like living in New Zealand, we've kind of almost forgotten COVID exists because we've been living COVID-free for almost the whole year. But I had to fly through Miami, through LA, and then was in the Bahamas for a while. And, you know, it was a big slap in the face, the reality that most of the world's dealing with. And, um, you know, so the thoughts are there. Um, it made me really be humbled and be grateful for what I've got and, uh, you know, wishes to everyone that hopefully they've kind of got through this year and, and they can enjoy Shark Week and get a bit of a smile on their face again. Yeah, for sure. It has been a strange one, but uh, I, I have to assume your wife is okay with the life of the, uh, the shark diving entrepreneur guy who travels around and puts his life in danger the whole time. Yeah, the good thing is she's, she's a camera woman and, uh, and she got addicted to underwater camera work. And nice. most of the photos you see of mine, she's taken. So it works well. I try and get her on some of the shoots, but at the same time, it's quite nice to separate work and life at times. So, uh, <laughs> uh, luckily, though, yes, yeah, she is totally on board with me swimming with sharks for a living um, because she enjoys it too. Nice. I just went with the whole, um, I know what I'm doing. I'm an expert. Believe me. And if you come out eventually, you might realize that it's actually kind of heinous at times. But, you know, it yeah, works. My, my <laughs> mom apparently believes that and lives by that. But I think she just does that to get herself through each day. But, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, we know sharks are good. Sharks are friends and we're all still here. So that's good. Nice. Well, let's talk about sharks. Um, before we dive into, you know, the return to uh, Headstone Hell, Let's look at your first mission. You went there in 2019 and on some of the dives, absolutely hectic, you guys found 33 individual identified tiger sharks and they were pretty enormous. What was your experience like in Norfolk Island? Was that the first time? Did you expect to see that? Oh, look, it was unreal. I mean, I, I really try and do projects that are novel and groundbreaking because not only is it fun because you're exploring, but um, 
generally the science and the discovery that comes with that is very poignant. And, and in this case, it was trying to give the Norfolk Islanders some answers about what's in their waters. Mm. And uh, to be frank, no one had ever gone there with that intention before. Um, and not many people actually get in the water there because a lot of them are just fishermen yeah. uh, or surfers. And so <laughs> we really did not know what to expect. And I think for a veteran like Andy Casagrande, when you see his face on that show, just being like mind blowing. He definitely looked pretty enormously surprised by the, the volume of sharks there. Totally. It gives perspective for what we, um, what we discovered. And, and what's amazing is, is how amazing Norfolk Island is. And, yeah. and that was really the big draw card to go back was this was like the good Pandora's box, you know, yeah. that we had opened. And, and we really, you know, we had to go back to, to, to see what it was all about. And because there were more breadcrumbs going in different directions mm -hmm. that, uh, that really attracted our eye as well. Well, let's, let's stay with the 2019 show because one of the things I was really curious about, and I'm sure everyone else is, is you know, what brought the sharks there? Why did you think that they're, they're you know, existing there at Norfolk Island? And has there been more research since that uh, show that you can share with us, like tagging info or anything like that? Yeah, no, totally. Well, look, I went there the year before in 2018 on a tourism shoot. I'd seen it on a fishing show in New Zealand from like five years before that. The fact that there was this bay called Headstone Bay where the locals dispose of, uh, you know, fish waste, offal waste, and sometimes through droughts, you know, full animals that have had to be culled. Um, and because it's, it's just logistically difficult to bury them in land, they don't have concrete lined offal pits. They don't want to contaminate their water source. So for hundreds of years, this, this, this organic waste has gone into the ocean to be recycled. Mm. And, and um, the sharks aren't silly. Tiger sharks especially are very um, um, calculated migra mig migrators. They, they turn up at an albatross colony as soon as chicks are fledging. They turn mm. up at a turtle hatchery as soon as the turtles leave the beach, like within days. And even if that changes climatically, they're there at the right time. And what I... What I really wanted to see was how reliant are they on Norfolk for the, the, the animal disposal, the cows, um, or are they there because this is just a pure, pristine marine environment, or is it both? Yeah, because I guess if you, if you look at it from that perspective, you see cow, you know, cows getting dumped in the water, you know, lots of food source. Uh, one school of thought would say you know, they're just there for that food source. They're perhaps residential, which would make it kind of a, a strange thing for that species. Um, is it seasonal? Yeah. Well, what was cool is, is firstly, in the 2019 trip, when we tagged them, we saw a very clear indication that they know what Headstone Bay is mm. and that they ate there and they went away for about 10 days, which is the digestion period for this animal, and then came straight back to Headstone. And then <laughs> wow. after a couple of weeks, they then migrated back up to New Caledonia, mm. um, where they spend the winter. And so it was, it was like a pit stop. And this is what tiger sharks are known for mm. turn up to a feeding event at a certain time of year eat get their fill then move to the next timely se seasonal event to feed there and norfolk seems to be one of those which is very unique in the sense that it's it's anthropogenic it's created by people it's not a natural event but clearly it's been going on long enough that it's been instilled in the dna and the memory of these sharks that they do this year after year and that's what's cool because after this trip um, a research trip from Australia, which is exactly what the intention of the, the Norfolk Island trip was for, um, was to encourage further research by the Australian government. 
they did that and they went and tagged mm. a bunch of sharks and it was great because I could look on this app and watch these sharks move and watch them congregate at Headstone, you know, the year after when I wasn't there. And um, it was like clockwork. In November, when the warmer waters were migrating south, they went there and like all of them at once and all of them to Headstone Bay. You'd see them feed and distribute, then you'd see them come back right there below the cliff. Um, so, it, you know, really, really amazing stuff. And I'm really happy that this show, because it's only like a two-week field experiment, you can't do an entire yeah. research project, but it catalyzed scientists of Australia to go there and, and investigate this place for the first time. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, well, this year when you went there, you were on kind of a different mission. Um, you're after great white sharks. And I have heard rumors of it. I've seen stuff myself on it and thought, wow, if, if somebody can go there and get tiger sharks and great whites feeding on the same food source in any type of tolerance of each other, that would be pretty incredible. Um, tell us about what took you there for this year. Yeah, well, you know, the good thing about these small little island communities, you know, similar to Stewart Island or the Chatham Islands, mm. is you get really good pubs. And in really good pubs, <laughs> you get really good bar stories. And when we were there in 2019, um, Andy and I would be sitting around talking to locals because that's the, the, the wealth of knowledge, especially mm. the fishermen. We started hearing great white stories popping up here and there. And, and I kind of knew of this a bit because I've seen the tracking data from New Zealand where they go up to the tropics every year and Norfolk's right there in the middle. Mm. There's nothing else there in the Pacific Ocean. It's right there. It's a pit stop, a perfect one. And, um, but, but stories are one thing. A couple of shark tag tracks are another thing. But to hear it from the locals and then to see some photos and mm. slowly start to gather some imagery that started to catalyze the idea of, wow, number one, this is clearly a special place because of what we've seen in 2019. Two, if there's, if there's tigers and whites there, that is extremely novel because anywhere where that can happen, generally those two species then separate. So yeah. the white shark turns up, the tigers move off. Like in, in Hawaii where there was that big uh, dead whale and that huge white shark turned up. There was a whole bunch of tigers there at the start and they all just went poof. Yeah. But I knew that... Norfolk is like the most tigery hotspot in the world. <laughs> so how does an individual white shark or a few migrating fit into that equation? Um, and, and what was great was I had, you know, one of New Zealand's best experience, white shark experts, Kenneth Scholle, um, mm. join me on this mission because he spent a lot of time in the preliminary stages of tagging white sharks in New Zealand. So he had a good understanding of what to expect there, how these animals may operate there. And uh, the two of us really just were on a mission to find white sharks in Norfolk Island, but we knew we were likely going to have to sift through a whole bunch of tiger sharks. To do it. <laughs> well, that did seem inevitable when you think about it. But uh, I mean, for people at home, to put it in context, you know, all sharks we consider to be, you know, apex predators. And it's not unusual in Shark Week shows, in real life, in all of our oceans to see these apex predators you know, existing around each other, sometimes competing for the same food source. And, you know, we don't really think about it that much, but when they get big and when we get towards this scale of apex predator, you know, the tigers and the whites, it's extremely unusual and kind of unheard of. So I'm curious with knowing what you know about these sharks, did you expect to go and find them in the same waters together, competing or cohabiting? Because of what you just said, the answer to that was no, because generally I would imagine that 
through their inter interspecies competition, they would have different migratory patterns in mm -hmm. order to avoid each other. And whichever species was the dominant would have the prioritization of the best time to be in that place. Totally. Um, and, and so we, what we tried to do was we shifted our trip timing a couple months later mm. in our first trip. Um, and we tried to do that to, to best capture when the white sharks might be going through and the tigers perhaps weren't there. Um, but at the same time, we wanted a little bit of overlap because the key element we were looking for was uh, perhaps an, an interaction between whites and tigers. Yeah. Because as you say, I, I rack my brain. I don't think I've ever seen those two really jostling. And, and more importantly, Norfolk has some of the biggest tigers in the world, the most numerous, and that would give what we think is the second tier species to the white perhaps that leg up where they may go head to head. So it was really exciting. And to be honest, we didn't really know what to expect. Um, but one thing was clear this time around, and it was actually a legal obligation. We needed a shark cage because mm. you can't legally intentionally dive with white sharks in Australian waters without one. And for sanity reasons and for comfort <laughs> reasons and Justifiably, because Kinescolle has been attacked by a white shark before and just barely survived, uh, we took a shark cage. Um, and that really put us in the thick of it. Well, that is a perfect segue to what we're going to look at right now, because right in the front of the show, we saw some stunning footage of the white sharks feeding on a carcass. Uh, this is the intel that they were acting on. And when I saw it, I was like, wow, these guys are in for a treat. So let's check that out right now. Yeah, good mate. How's it going? Good, good. Um, just letting you know, there's a couple of um, couple of big white sharks. They're uh, they're holding into a couple of cows in the water out of Hitstone Bay. Well, how long ago was that? Right now. They're there now. What are you serious? Holy I had my drone up. They're definitely white. Can you send us that footage? All right, let's have a look at this, bro. Man, look at that straight away. Two white sharks. But the most recent footage shows great whites feasting on Norfolk's infamous shark bait. That's a big animal, that one on the right. Two white sharks in a known tiger shark hotspot is a unique opportunity to see these two apex giants compete. No one's ever looked into white sharks and tiger sharks coexisting. It's unexplored domain. White shark behavior is generally, I'm the top dog. I'm the apex predator. That's a pretty rare event to witness at any time, anytime, anywhere. What was your initial reaction to seeing that drone footage? Well, if you've seen the whole show, you'll see it. I'm losing it. I'm on the boat, you know, we're there. It's like day one or two. Mm. And, and we, we're literally in the water just around the coast, a bit from Headstone, setting up some instruments. And we get a call from a local being like, unsurprised. He's just like, hey, man, there's like two white sharks eating a cow. And we're like, it's hard to believe. And... <laughs> Then with modern technology, it was amazing because he could send us the footage right then and there. Mm. And it honestly, I just got tingles at the back of my neck because it, 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 as a researcher and an explorer, you, you, you act on whims, you act on a bit of evidence, but to see it in the flesh, to realize that your theory is actually happening and it's just around the corner is, is so rewarding. But at the same time, I know how quickly the ocean works and how fluid it is. And knowing that that opportunity may vanish very quickly or that tigers may turn up and outcompete those animals, yeah. you know, that, that's, that was the fear. And, and it kind of set the tone for the whole show where 
we felt like we were just chasing ghosts. It reminded mm. me of Point Break, you know, and Pappas is like, they're ghosts, Bodie. Like, you tie the ghosts. And it felt like that. It felt like we were, we were chasing the ex-presidents the whole time. But, <laughs> I mean, you noted that you took a shark cage. It seemed like a very prudent idea. Um, I spent my fair share of time in the water, you know, in and outside of cages in like pretty hairy situations. But I've never sat there looking at a cow floating in the water, just kind of hanging there in front of me, just waiting to get nailed. And I looked at that shot of you guys and knowing that there were tigers and very likely whites around, you know that animal's just going to explode in front of you. What were you feeling when you're looking at that? Like, it's action. You've got the front, front row seat of some pretty severe action. Well, like, what was great is, to a certain extent, we didn't have to worry too much about ourselves getting caught mm. up in the feeding frenzy. Um, but that quickly turned into the opposite when, <laughs> when we started yelling at each other because we've got these fold-down doors. Yeah. Like, shut the door! Shut the door! Like, Those best-laid plans, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Because, like, you know these cameramen, they're, they're very needy and they've got these huge things no, and they need to stick them not. out <laughs> and, and they need a big gap. And I'm sitting there with a tiny little PVC pole trying to watch Kinner's back, but also trying to do my job narrating yeah. and, and then seeing what's going on. But I ended up most of the time being a safety diver for Kinner so he could, <laughs> he could get the shots. And to give context like that, I was having to be a safety diver for Kinner, one of the most experienced cage divers in the world, while we're in a shark cage, reflects how many tigers there were and how many angles they were coming at. Um, but to put in the context, the cow in front of us, look, it's a, it's a really weird thing. And I think when we all saw the first Headstone show, you know, it shocked a lot of people, but mm. that's why it's really important to put the context of why the cow was there. These people are doing this out of practicality, um, you know, all respect to the animal that is the cow. Um, you know, and the fact that, you know, we're not, we're not ordering these cows for TV. This is a natural process that's happening. And, and, and especially at that time of year when it's droughts, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, these are the cow populations that feed the island, but they've only got so many resources of water and food for these animals. So this inevitably happens. And Well, let's, let's talk about that. What, what inevitably happens? Uh, you're saying that they're breeding too many cows or they don't need some or they can't feed them. They can't resource them. So they're culling them and therefore putting them in the water. Yeah. I mean, basically, when there's not enough water, there's not enough feed. Yeah. Um, and when you've got a head of 5,000 cows or something on an island... Mm -hmm. Um, you've got old cows that don't produce milk. You've got old cows that might not produce calves. Those old cows, their meat may not be, you know, actually good to eat because it's yeah. too tough. There's only so many dogs to feed, you know, and they do use a lot of these older animals for dog food for their island. Um, you know, Norfolk Islanders are very resourceful people and they don't waste yeah. anything. But then when you've got these excess animals, it's just an unfortunate consequence of farming. Yeah. And um, the reality is, is, is they don't want to waste them. So, you know, it goes back into the ecosystem at, it's clearly feeding a population of near threatened animals. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's a novel thing, but in my eyes, it's, 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 a, it's a good natural cycle. And, um, you know, it's created a phenomenon that, that is, is, you know, never really been seen before. And what it's allowed, and the whole reason coming back to your first question is it allowed Ken and I to sit there in front row seats and just get to see like every second a new interaction that, you know, you previously hadn't observed before. Like one thing I really noticed was, big tiger would come in, it would get a piece of cow. And as soon as it closed its eyes, it covered its synthetic membrane, the little sharks would see that. Like I'm talking tiny ones and they'd mm. boost in 
get a little bit and they'd frantically try and get it off and then they'd bang it out of there before the tiger saw them sure and it was just just very novel interactions and but one thing that also really stood out was how the tigers all worked together seemingly there was never aggression between them and they seemingly just did a big cycle between mm. you know what i counted in the end at one stage 40 tiger sharks um <laughs> just cycling as if it was for a mutual benefit to all of them There are a lot of sharks down there. Can you characterize kind of what that population looked like? You know, there was obviously some very big ones, but you also noted there was, there was some little ones. And you've, you've also said there was kind of a ballet dance of going on. So how does a hierarchy work? What did you observe for the tiger shark population behavior? For context, this, this felt like a huge step up from the first trip we did. The trip I did with Andy where we didn't have a cage. So mm. much so that Kenna said to me, after our cage time, I was like, you couldn't have done that without a cage. And I was like, well, I did that last time without a cage. But, <laughs> but I was like, I don't know why. you know. And it showed... In though, retrospect, think, pretty dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think it, it also showed, though, the because a tiger shark is quite a shy, cautious shark because mm. it's a scavenger. And, and when I was in the water trying to tag them, they were very shy until the point where they realized I wasn't a threat. And then yeah. it got quite intense. And in fact, they kind of shooed me and Andy out of the water. Um, but with the cage, once they banged into us enough and realized we were just kind of observers, um, it just became super full on. And you would see at the very start, there'd be nothing happening. There's just a cow there. And then one big tiger would turn up. And it was incredible because this is within 15 minutes of this, mm. this cow being disposed of. And you're like, okay, cool. I get it. There's some tiger sharks that perhaps wait there at Headstone for this. And a big one will dominate that area. But as soon as that big shark starts biting into it, I swear it must be a sound thing. Because at that stage, the scent could have only traveled a couple hundred yards, sure. maybe a thousand yards max. And within about an hour, you got 40 tiger sharks mm. around a carcass. Either that's the most dense population of tigers in the world, which it already likely is, or there's something bigger going on, which I think is sound, because sound travels miles through the water. And the sound of crunching bone or, or, or the, this, the hide of the cow or the, the tigers themselves are doing something mm. has to be what can attract that many sharks at once, because then they all turn up and there's a very coordinated ballet. And... It's, it's the big ones at the top and the little ones at the bottom. And uh, for us to inject ourselves in there in a cage enabled us to experience <laughs> all, of, all of that hierarchy because when we were right beside the cow, we were just a battering ram for these, these tigers. Yeah. And they had no problem testing out how good the Norfolk Islanders could weld. Yeah, they definitely knocked you around pretty good. I mean, they, at one point, they were biting on your, uh, the floats of fenders on your cage. I know you guys went on a drop down with two lines. I'm like, eh. I got to stop you on the float, man. That, I've seen a shot, and I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was, oh, you'd know better. I think it was Brandon. If someone in a white shark cage and the white shark gets the float, and it's like yeah. a quintessential Shark Week highlight. And I've always been jealous that, like, what an experience <laughs> to be in the front row with something so big. And to, to have literally, I swear this tiger was, was 15, 16 feet long. Yeah. And you can see the girth on it when it is biting the float above my head. And there's a shot where it gets, rips the float. And then there's just 
the mouth silhouette around my head and shoulders. And it just gives you this beautiful visual context of what you're being surrounded by. It's yeah. one of the most powerful apex predators on earth. And um, just incredible. So I really hope that scene sticks with people because that's when Kenna got out and said, Riley, I really don't think you ever would have got out of the cage in that kind of scenario. And kudos to the sharks. You know, they behave quite differently when you're in a cage. Yeah. You're outside a cage. They are very smart and cautious and they may perhaps not be that bold. It's hard to make a comparison, really, because people say that all the time. You're like, you see, you see these sharks behave in one kind of way. Like we did this with white sharks for years. You know, we're seeing them come in and approach the cage and perhaps bump the cage. And everyone's thinking, you put a hand out there, you're you're gone. And we'd sit there on the deck and go, you know, would you swim in that? Would you swim in that? Would you swim in that? And when we did, it was no big deal. I mean, you're certainly cautious. And in that scenario, I can't say that that would have been a good idea. Um, but maybe it would have been okay when they see you in outside of a cage, you know, who knows? I mean, they're there for a very large food source. You know, yeah. some guy blowing bubbles is not a cow floating on the surface bleeding, you know? Yeah, it's one of those things where <clears throat> and I think as you get older, as you have more commitments in your life, mm. you think a little bit less renegade. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I had an experience last year with a Marco shark that made me change the way I approach certain species. And, and, and Kinnick, you know, he told me the story of how he, when he was attacked by a white shark mm. in, in the Chathams. And, it, you know, heavy stuff, man. I like, yeah. you need to tell that story on a podcast. But, like, you get to a point where it's not about the fact that you don't trust the sharks or you think that they're, that they are bad. It's about respect of what an, a capable predator is, 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 is able of. And the fact that you're not supposed to be there in the water. Yeah. And in, in most humans, you walk down the street, they say, hi, they wave. They're not going to punch you in the face, but there are the odd bad <laughs> apple. And, and if you run into the bad apple of the ocean, like you can't do anything in that scenario. So, it's not about the fact that the sharks are bad or capable of hurting you. It's more about the fact of respecting that you're literally jumping into their supermarket yeah. and, and you're not supposed to be there. And so like, sometimes it's easier to, to accept to be the observer and use the cage. And um, to be honest, it was really, really nice sitting in that sweet welded up cage. There's, there's, there's nothing wrong with protecting your own limbs. And I mean, for me, when I look at that, I, I definitely, I, I guess I also have to say I've sort of grown over the years, you know, when when I was in my 20s and, you know, hanging out on the back deck of a white shark boat and jumping in the water with the things and stuff. I mean, you know, tiger sharks all over the world traveling, doing all this stuff. Um, it's rad and I love it and I still do. But you, I've definitely done some things I sort of look back on and like, would I do that now? And the answer is probably, but maybe in different sort of contexts. Um, I think with anything coming up now, I'm like, all right, is there a real reason for us to do it? You know, is there, is there a scientific, a behavioral, is there like, is there some context that needs to put somebody in the water other than it makes for a good shot? And yeah. you definitely want that good shot because the shots enable the research, the money enables the travel and everything we need to do to be able to do these things and share this information with people. So you have to be sensitive to that, but you do also have to think about, you know, what you really need to expose the animals to and yourself too. Uh, I think you guys played it smart with the cage. Making those decisions in a place where no one's ever gone and dived yeah. like that before or swum with those animals. I remember the first 
time I was at Norfolk, which was in 2018 when I was there, as I said, on a tourism trip. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sitting on the boat and I know that no one's voluntarily or intentionally, and especially not in the vicinity of a bunch of cows in the water and 30 tiger sharks, <laughs> got in the water. And, and kudos to the tigers, as I expected, even though I got in with a big two by four piece of wood, they just vanished as soon as I got in the water, which is very characteristic of tigers. And I yeah. had to do the cannonball technique and tuck up and wait, make them not be so shy. And it took a couple of hours until they started accepting us. But, you know, yeah, it's respect. That's the bottom yeah. line, you know, and, 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 and I'm, I don't, you grow up enough that I don't need that shot or want that shot to get followers on Instagram. That's not why you're doing it. You know, it's about, as you said, is this beneficial to the reason that I'm here? Yeah. Um, and and for us, more. yeah, having the cage, you know, we were there to look for white sharks and yeah. white sharks in murky water in a feeding event where you're the smallest guy and they're an ambush predator. Um, yeah, you want a cage. Yeah, well, let, let's talk about that. Cause uh, you know, seeing that footage, seeing even more tigers, perhaps even larger sizes than you saw last time at a different time of year. And it really just makes you think, whoa, this is this pretty amazing place. Um, but seeing all that, I wouldn't actually expect to see white sharks, at least in the vicinity, perhaps, perhaps on the same island, perhaps, you know, opportunistically taking on the same food, but not hanging out in the middle of that bait ball. So, but from your perspective, having been there and with your biological knowledge, Tell the people at home why we wouldn't expect to see tigers and whites in that same water, perhaps competing for the same food. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a variety of reasons. The first big one that stuck out to us was white sharks aren't a, a schooling shark. They're, they're, they're not a whaler like the, the tiger shark is. You know, tigers are part of the whaler family. They're a schooling shark. They're very social. They don't mind being in the vicinity of each other. Whereas white sharks are, are solo hunters that only aggregate in areas of of a localized food source. And so when you put into context, you've got this gang of tigers migrating down to this one spot from the tropics. And then you've got these white sharks moving individually from New Zealand and the Chathams and Australia up to Norfolk. You imagine being, it's like the new kid at school turning up and, and there's all these groups already established. You're not just going to walk into one of those groups and be like, Hey mate, get out of my lunch queue you know like totally. you're gonna flutter around on the peripheries or if the canteen or whatever the food court's opened early and you're the first one there yeah you're gonna tuck in but <laughs> as soon as those cool kids turn up you're gonna shy away to your table by yourself and that's what we expected and we started to well firstly we saw it in the beginning because we didn't mm. see any white sharks we just we had this video of white sharks right there in the bay we turn up that cow's gone. There's no mm-hmm. white sharks. And then all of a sudden there's 30 odd tiger sharks. And we're like, yeah. okay, this seems we, like how theory would progress. You did see one at, uh, near the fishing pier. Now to me, that looked like a pretty small shark. Um, but it's kind of hard to tell on the TV with the footage and everything else and, and not actually being there. But, um, was that perhaps not a juvenile, but you know, sub adult. Yeah, so that these started adding layers of our understanding, which is mm. the whole premise of going to these places, trying to learn more. And and when we saw that, that for starters, that was incredible. <laughs> it's like you go to the wolf as a kid to catch little sprats, you know, not to catch <laughs> great, great white, not to see great white sharks <laughs> off the wolf. And and that reflects how novel this place is. Yeah. But what was really intriguing talking to Nash, the local kid, was that. The white shark was there. It was even scared of the gang of whalers that owned that mm. wolf. And it would fleet in and out. And then when the two tigers turned up, the two tigers 
totally pushed that white out and it only came in opportunistically, which really continues to emphasize the theory we had that packs of tigers, at least in Norfolk, mm. um, are keeping away whites, which is very contradictory to global theory because we've seen multiple scenarios where there's, there's tigers on a whale carcass. A white yeah. turns up, they've all gone. Um, and, and what was really intriguing, and this didn't actually make the show, but those two tigers that turned up at the wharf that scared away the whites, mm. they started getting frustrated with the whalers that started nipping and stealing the bits of food to the extent that Nash told me one of the tigers turned around and grabbed a whaler, ripped it in half and killed it, and then just spat it out and continued feeding on the fish carcasses that were being thrown off the wharf, which wow. shows you the, <laughs> that, that dominance that Norfolk is the land of the tiger seeming. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. He didn't get that on film, did he? <laughs> I, was, I, I, was, I was asking you, Justin, man. I was getting my wallet out like, come yeah, on. Bro. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll take it, whatever footage you got. Um, I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. And I'm curious, though, with, um, do you have enough tagging data to be able to see if that sort of gang of tiger sharks only happens at the island or if this whole gang is actually traveling on their whole migratory path? Because I wonder if it's like a confluence zone and they all kind of go their own way. Yeah. Well, I was watching, it's been, you know, two years now I've been watching the Australian tags that they put mm. out and, and it was about a dozen um, sharks and it, w- it was really cool. It was like you say, it was, it was they're all literally at New Caledonia and, yep. and, and what happens is when they migrate all, to, all kind of at the same time, they go to like a focal point and then they start distributing and kind of hanging out for the season and doing their own thing. And then literally, I remember it because it was the day after my birthday, November 3rd, they literally went from there to boom yeah. at Norfolk, at Headstone Bay. And then they started dispersing, but they'd constantly in their own time returned to Headstone Bay based on probably how much food they got. Um, so it was very much uh, like a seasonal pack that would hit this focal point at the same time, redistribute, and then move again. Um, whereas the white sharks we know, they they migrate in a much more spread environment. I just finished doing a, a white shark show um, down at Stewart Island after Norfolk. And we noticed the sharks were there way later than mm. usual. And, and it wasn't just the big ones like we had expected. There was all the way down to little ones. And talking to a whale scientist at my university, she said the whale migrations are very spread out as well. It used to be like two months. Now it's like six months. And what that means, I think, is these white sharks are much more individually turning up to Norfolk perhaps mm. and the tigers you know have just been like all right boys like you got no chance because <laughs> yeah if you're not bringing your crew don't come mess with yeah, us and, and, yeah and we had looked a lot at um historical footage from people in Norfolk there's a great book and I think we even put some of this in, in the show where the white sharks have very much been at Norfolk for a long time and they, yeah. they they know what headstone is there's a photo of one eating an entire horse that got dumped off there back in the day so you know you don't know till you go. Yeah. And the second round of Norfolk really opened our eyes. And one thing I've really got to emphasize is we're looking for, for whites, but this year the tigers were bigger, so much bigger than we saw in, in 2019. There was one particular tiger, and you probably hear my, my voice just raise up 10 octaves. <laughs> they People will tell you off as a scientist being like, that tiger's 16 feet. Because people are like, bro, it doesn't, they don't get that big. Yeah. And it's very hard to estimate animals underwater. But when you do this, as you know, for a living, you get pretty good at it. Sure. And this one tiger, it makes a big 
cameo at the end. It's got these big scars down its back. Was so big. I said it was over 16 feet, and I stick by that. It was huge. That's pretty gigantic for that species, for sure. Uh, what are what do the locals think about all this? You know, obviously they've they've worked with it for many years, but as you say, it seems like they're not using the water much for you know surfing or diving or anything like that. The more kind of fishing community, but is that driven by the sharks or is it like? Do they want to get rid of them? Like, yeah. are they okay with them being around? Yeah, no, no. Because you could argue they just feed them less, right? And maybe they'd go away. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the premise of the first show. Was yeah, it was the opposite to that. Though. The locals were scared if the government of Australia stopped them dumping cows, mm. would the sharks turn up and be like, "Oh, where, where's my migratory meal? Well, that surfer now looks like something that's appealing." That's what they were afraid yeah. of. And so ultimately kind of emphasize the fact that you can't really stop this thing that you've been habituating uh, without some real serious science. And that's what it was good to see Australian government start doing some science there. Yeah. Um, but as far as the locals go, no, these people are very, very integrated with the ocean. Um, the reason why there's not that many people in the water is it's such a small island community. They all work like one little ecosystem themselves with, you know, people who grow food on land, people who do art, people who run the shop, people who are the mechanics, people mm. who are the fishermen. It's not really like, let's just go out and have fun, you know, and recreate in the water. They're, they're trying to survive out there. And so they all go do things for a reason. So there's only a handful of fishermen who go out commercially to feed the, the restaurants and the tourists. Um, there's a few rec, you know, recreational guys, but as far as the diving goes, there's only a handful of guys. Um, Mitch, who was one of our safety divers, started up a, a dive operation there for tourists um, and they never see the sharks. That's the amazing thing. Really? They, I was actually wondering never... if you could, uh, you know, just, you know, back of my mind thinking, you know, commercial shark dive operation seems like a no brainer there. Yeah. Well, yeah. you could, if you started, you them for them. yeah, if you started <laughs> doing that, but that is one thing where then I come back to then the surfers, there are surfers yeah. there and they're really cool guys. And as surfers, we respect that. And, um, we actually had a meeting with the surfers because they were understandably uh, curious and nervous to understand what we are doing there. You know, a bunch of people come in and start working with sharks. You want to know what yeah. they're doing. And, and what was great is we eased all things in their mind when I just said, boys, I totally understand where you're coming from. We are not changing anything. We're simply putting a cage in the water and observing what you guys are naturally doing, which is disposing of fish frames off the wharf yeah. and uh, disposal of cows at Headstone Howl. We're not manipulating anything because we're here to observe what you guys um, are, are ultimately creating in your backyard. And they were instantly like, cool. We've never had a problem here. We've never had a shark attack. We don't even really ever see them. Um, so if you don't come and change anything, we're happy with that. That's all good. And then they left. And, and that was great. Yeah. Um, the, the problem is the guy was kind of like, and we all know this, the surface He's like, what can you do to kind of help ease my mind though, when yeah. I'm out surfing? And I was like, nothing, nothing, put it, mate, <laughs> put it in the back of your brain, you thing, know, you surfers, know, you just got to matter how much head. you know about sharks. If you have, if you've got your feet dangling in the water over a piece of fiberglass, you're just as vulnerable as the next guy. That's yeah. You know, well, see, Luke, I thought getting into shark science as a, a fearful surfer was going to help me. But in fact, it's probably made me more scared when I surf because I know all the things I'm doing wrong. And as you said, <laughs> it, you're sitting there not doing all the rules we know when we swim with sharks. Yeah. So you're ultimately letting the sharks sit there and go, geez, you really look like 
the Big Mac that I, that, that I eat around here because this is the vicinity of where I get Big Macs. And, and, and I can't ask you. I can't touch you I, unless I nibble on you. You know, like, yeah, can't blame them. Yeah, and I do the same thing, mate. Yeah, this area could be great for that, that and that and that. And instead of just going out and enjoying like a nice right-hander, it's like, okay, you start getting a little weirdly sketchy, but I just wish for a mask so I could dive under a seam, you know? <laughs> I think that was, you know, definitely an adventure for you guys. Uh, when you go to Norfolk next time, uh, I want an invite, as long as uh, the world's like able to travel and stuff again, because I'm convinced you can go at a certain time of the year and probably get what you're after. You know, the, the white sharks and the tigers together. Do you feel the same way? Well, firstly, you're going to have to line up behind Andy Casagrande because he was so pissed he couldn't come back. Oh, Andy owes um, me one. He'll let me go. <laughs> <laughs> but um, look, mate, you're spot on. Um, we're already working right now to try and get back there yeah. uh, for August, September because we realized, um, and it was because of COVID, that was the original window we wanted to hit, but we got yeah. pushed out because of COVID. Um, and in fact, on this trip, during COVID, we had to get a couple of private jets at times to get me and Kenna yeah. back to New Zealand. We nearly got stuck out um, there and we would have been stuck there for three months because <laughs> of our MIQ set up. But luckily we got back. But um, yeah, September, August seems to be that peak. It seems if we wanted to get the whites, because look, we got, we got whites through footage. We got whites yeah. through reports while we we're there. We got whites in the sense of our, our, our bait boxes were bitten by whites and tigers and the cameras were all removed. It was super infuriating and frustrating. But as you know, in marine science, you go for two weeks to a place, man, you can't expect to find gold first time. Right. And, um, and it really gave us some more stepping stones to figure out how to go back and be more calculated. And, and talking to the locals, using their footage um, and looking at the tracks of when the tigers aren't there, like before November, it seems, has given us this window that we're going to go try and hit uh, this coming September, October, because I think Norfolk is that much of a tiger hotspot. The white sharks have to find their own time to capitalize on this area. That makes sense. Well, mate, good luck with that. Uh, thanks for joining us. It's always awesome to chat with you and uh, sharing your knowledge. And, you know, for the people at home, that's your daily bite. And thanks so much for joining us. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time, guys. Happy Shark Week.